Hey, thanks for being here. Let's do some pod crashing. Episode number 198 is with Erica Lance from the podcast, The Turning. I'm doing great. Thanks. What an amazing landscape of thought that you share here because you deal with reality you challenge our imaginations while growing in other areas and and for you to be in that place of relinquishing that kind of energy i mean i can't imagine what you go through putting each episode together Wow, thank you so much. It's been so fun to work on. And one thing we try to do is cr- make create something that's immersive for listeners as possible. So you create soundscapes that help them feel the best we can, what it is like to dance on stage. Mirrors are such a major part of my life. I mean, I remember as a child, I would just sit there and stare at that kid that was in that mirror because I always thought that kid had a better life. And then all of a sudden, when I got into martial arts, because I can relate with you on the dancers, because I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you you have to study what your body is doing. And so it's very interesting to hear how how you use mirrors as a tool. Mm, yeah, you you can relate. They are an important part of training and they're an important part of any dancer's artistry. And what I think what can happen is when you stare at that reflection in the mirror every day, all day, um, that self-criticism comes in. And the first thing you notice is all of your flaws. Mm-hmm. And that's something we're exploring that it becomes just so intensified that it can stay with you for the rest of your life even after you stop dancing there's a lot of judgment in that mirror though my god they th- those two guys have got to get along or those two people have got to get along and and i you know we've got to create some sort of language absolutely and i think that a lot of dancers and dance teachers are trying to figure out how to create a space in that those room of rooms of mirrors in those dance studios that feels um, uplifting and not just, um, you know, and if, and they already are, they're, they're places of immense art and people love to dance. So I'm, I'm not trying to focus on the negative here, but I think it can easily veer into something that um, feels much more difficult and even dangerous. For those dancers, how important is the lighting? Because I'm a light freak. That is so interesting, and I haven't explored that, but I mean, lights are a big part of performing. It's, you're in the spotlight when you're on stage, and and it's a whole other sensory um, part of the art. So that's a really good question. One of the things that you jump into is that you talk about women who have dedicated their lives to religion. Let's let's grow in that direction to find it, because I want to know where your heart is and how, how this came into being. Yeah. So in season one of the podcast, we, we we have two seasons and they focus on different worlds. Season one focuses on former sisters with the missionaries of charity, which was Mother Teresa's religious order. It still is. And there are thousands of women in this religious order around the world to this day. Um, and I spoke with former sisters. So women who realized that the life wasn't for them and they left, which is a huge decision because they have taken lifelong vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, mm-hmm. and full-hearted service to the poorest of the poor. And they've essentially taken, especially in that religious order, uh, marriage vows to Jesus. And so leaving is this huge heart-wrenching thing. They do not take it lightly, and it's not easy to leave. Um, but what the former sisters in season one talk about is how um, constrictive that that community was in many ways. It's an unusually conservative or unusually um, traditional religious order that's held on to a lot of things that most uh, Catholic orders have, are no longer implementing. Um, but the what happens is, you know, taking a vow of obedience where you have to obey your superior no matter what, even if you disagree with them, even if you think they're doing something wrong, um, and when you're 
you know, beating yourself, self-flagellation to become closer to Jesus, it can easily veer into something that starts to feel damaging. And that's why many of them left. What's really interesting about this, and listeners need to understand that you've got a radio background. You, you've been through some serious training. And, and, and I'm always excited to talk with people who, who've taken what we learned through books and through other people's experiences, and you've, you've developed a podcast that's effective. How, how did that radio training get you ready for this moment where you're, where you're creating stories that people can carry with them? The radio training was huge. And it, uh, I mean, I used to make radio features for to air, you know, in the morning that people would listen to on their drive into work. Um, and I think what's great about podcasts is you're using those tools of radio mm-hmm. of understanding the human voice can, you know, bring a story to life and pull listeners in and learning how to craft a story. But with a podcast, I can go much longer, you know, instead of a seven minute feature or a 12 minute feature that will be really long, um, I can make 10 episodes that are each like 40 minutes um, diving deep into a world. And so it's so enriching to just, you know, sit down and binge and just enter a different world for a while. Yeah, because we are those binge watchers and we're also binge listeners as well. I mean, it's it's like when, when I get in the car, it's like, get it on. I, I got to have it on right now. Let me let me <laughs> have it. Let me and, and, and you get you and you get lost in the paragraphs and the stories and the interviews. And you feel like that I'm sitting right there with you. Mm that's the goal that's the goal and i think that's why radio and podcasts are great connectors it lets us realize we're not alone it lets us have conversations in a way um with people who we would never bump into on the street because we live on opposite ends of the country or opposite sides of the world and can create that intimacy you know when you have a microphone and you you go up to someone and start asking them questions you you know it like gives everyone involved permission to kind of go there to like ask those questions that you don't typically ask someone in polite company to ask people about what they're really thinking and to be able to have those conversations recorded and then you know listen to them as a listener that's my favorite thing in the world that's why i am uh constantly listening to radio and podcasts and that's why i love to make them too let's talk about that recording people because here in north carolina only one person has to know that you're recording and that one person is you so, so what, what is your recording way of doing things? Because I'm always afraid that once I put that microphone in front of someone, oh my God, now I'm going to get the actor. This, I don't know. I'm not going to get a real conversation here. How, how do you go about it? Mm-hmm. So um, definitely, I'm, I'm not sure if you mean, you know, sort of like, you know, according to local laws, like they might not need to know you're recording. Yeah. Um, in my case, they always know I'm recording. You know, we've probably talked before and you're right. It, you know, it, it, at first, depending on the person, they might think, oh, gosh, I have a microphone in front of me. What is this? But um, the nice thing is because I am working on this over a period of time, I'm able to develop relationships with them a little more, the people that I'm talking to. And I think that the microphone eventually melts away yeah. and you're just having a conversation. And so um, you know, humans, we adapt to things quickly and, and microphone melts away, which thank goodness it does. Let me ask you here, Erica, is, is that microphone one of your mirrors? Ooh, that is a very good question. Yeah. Maybe that's my mirror and maybe that's my version is the microphone. And it's, it's how I'm seeing the world, you know, how I'm reflecting back what I'm encountering and, yeah, when I hear my voice back in my own recordings, I let me say, I don't love it. I think most people don't love the sound of their own voice. No. So, yeah, maybe for the radio producer, the microphone is the mirror. 
Because I mean, it, it allows you to to basically you, you when when you're interviewing someone, or I, I hate the word interview, when you're having a conversation with somebody, I mean, you you've, you're thinking about who's going to receive it and how they're going to receive it, and and so I mean, even after the first season, I I just can't imagine the response that people shared with you because you became so open when it came to the women of religion. It was amazing to get the response because I heard from a lot of people who really related and some of them had had experiences with, you know, different types of religious groups. Some of them had experiences experiences that they felt were similar that were not religious related at all. And I heard from nuns, current nuns. I heard from priests um, who saw something they recognized in the podcast. And I, I loved hearing that. Um, I think that we were able to get to some truths that a lot of people can relate to. And I heard even more stories from listeners who wrote in to me. So um, that was really meaningful. I mean, first of all, to know that, you know, someone's hearing this, but that it's it's starting conversations. Did you get the letter that said, thank you for humanizing these people? I mean, I realize we're supposed to grow with respect and, and give them the love and every, and the honor. But at the same time, I love hearing the human side of the story. Absolutely. And I think with both seasons, um, both nuns and ballerinas sometimes are a little dehumanized. It's like um, other members of the population can start to see them as like almost mystical creatures who are performing this certain type of femininity that um, is part of our culture. And, you know, it's like, oh, what what are the lives of nuns like? What are the lives of ballerinas like? Um, there's this mystique about them. And they're just people who have a different life path. And so being able to hear that, you know, over the course of 10 episodes each season, I think is really important. Where along the way did you realize, uh-oh, my next one is going to be about ballerinas? Because I love that moment where, where a thought is given, you know, that it's like, wow, I've got some energy, but how am I going to activate it? Mm, totally. So for me, I remember I was thinking like, oh, what should season two be? And I started to think about my childhood because I studied ballet, as a lot of people do. You know, most people who study ballet don't become professional dancers. Right. And that's one reason I think people are relating to this season is they're like, wait, that was part of my life, even though it's not anymore. Um, and I mentioned it to my co-producer, Aylan Lance Lester, who's also my sister. And she was like, this is good. We got to do this. Um, and then we talked to our coworkers and and everyone seemed to be really interested in this. And as I started digging deeper, I was so enthralled and so fascinated. And um, yeah, I was completely swept away. I, it's interesting that you say it was once part of your life. I mean, um, I, I've always believed that with being a ballerina or being a martial artist, it is your life. And what you learn through the daily disciplines of, of making sure that, you know, that your focus and your inner core of energy is with you forever. Mm. It's true. I think I learned, you know, so much discipline from yes. every day going to the studio, doing the exercises, going through class. So it it must have intrinsically shaped me. And that's one thing in the podcast that I'm, I'm discussing with Aylan, my sister and co-producer, is I say, you know, sometimes I'm not sure what parts of me are because of ballet and what parts of me are just me, because mm -hmm. I spent all of my formative years as, in childhood in the studio every day. And so how do I know, you know, what's my natural personality and what is ballet influencing me? So there's no question it's had a huge impact on my life. And that's not something I recognized actually before making this series because I did quit as a teenager, kind of moved on with my life. It's been a long time since then. 
and I'm coming to terms through working on this project, how much it did impact me. Don't you think you were called to tell this story about the ballerina? Because so many times we think of, oh, the ballerina, is this a mother and a father pushing their child into something? When in reality, that's not what I'm picking up on here at all. I think that's true. You know, really often it does come from kids themselves because they feel drawn to this art form Mm -hmm. and, you know, feel called to it. You know, I talk to dancers who they see a performance on stage and they say, that's going to be me someday. That's going to be me someday. And um, I know in my case, um, my parents were incredibly supportive of me pursuing ballet, you know, up until I quit. But as I got older and as I got pulled in more and they could tell that I was questioning, you know, is this the life I want? Am I ready to give up everything for this art form? I think they started to feel like, I don't know if Erica's happy in this. And they were they were struggling themselves of like how to be both supportive and also support me in wanting in leaving if I wanted to. So I think it can be hard for parents to figure out that line of like what's support, what's pushing, what's what's helping their kids follow the path that they want. But I think many dancers feel called. It feels like a vocation, not just a career. Look at those two strings that you just brought together there. Because when you talk about the Mother Teresas of the world and you talk about the dancers, it is about commitment. It is about sacrifice. It is about putting your entire self into it. While at the same time, as a dancer, you had to be listening to the universe in order to find the storyline that you were going to share with those viewing. Yeah, I think there are these common threads between um, Mother Teresa's religious order and ballet, and they're so different in so many ways. But this sense of self-abnegation, of giving everything, of sacrifice, sometimes the the sense that pain is something valuable, um, which can be taken too far as well, are present in both communities. And um, I think they're often present in communities in which there's a leader who's sort of in charge of the group, um, whether it's like a choreographer choreographer or director or the head of the religious order um, or any group in which the members are there because they believe in something strongly, because they have that calling, that vocation. I think when you have a vocation, you'll do anything for it. And that's where abuse can sometimes happen yep. because the stakes feel so high. Yeah, yeah self-abuse. Self-abuse starts there first. Yeah, self-abuse. And then, you know, in some cases, it can lead to other forms of abuse because it's, uh, you know, when you have these power dynamics and strict hierarchy and, you know, stakes that feel so high, I think it gets, uh, you know, prone to that. Yeah. So from the sidelines, they always say that as a martial artist, your best place in a room is on the sideline because that's how you learn through other people. Is What about a ballerina? Are they watching from the sidelines to become better because they can compare what somebody else is doing wrong and say, hey, I'm probably doing it wrong too. I've now seen it. Oh, absolutely. That's such a good point. I think that's a big part of what ballet class is, is it's a bunch of people in a classroom. You know, it's not one-on-one for the most part. And anytime anyone in the class gets corrected, everyone witnesses that and learns from it. So absolutely, it's one of those art forms that you're constantly watching others in order to understand your own body better. What about the confidence versus the ego of being a dancer? Because, I mean, you've got to have both. You do. It's interesting. A number of the dancers I spoke with cited confidence as something they struggled with. Mm-hmm. Um, one really iconic ballerina said, oh, man, if I had had the confidence of my 40s when I, when I was in my 20s, I would have been 
you know, she couldn't even imagine like how unstoppable she would have been because it can be really hard in your 20s, um, early 20s, even late teens. And you're on stage and you're in this enormous pressure of performing um, and you doubt yourself. And often with age, I think some of that confidence increases because you realize I do know what I'm doing. And so it's a it's a big struggle for dancers. Absolutely. In ballerine, you know, when, in, in, you know, ballet and with the ballerinas, it's is it the same situation as it's not when it's not if I get hurt, it's when I get hurt. I mean, are you constantly or are they constantly thinking about that? Because it's going to be right there in the mirror. They're going to see it before it happens. I think so. I mean, I think there are some dancers who are lucky and, and don't deal with injuries. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, injury is a is a big part of being a dancer. And I was surprised talking with dancers, how many of them had experienced, like sometimes dancing through stress fractures, just having chronic injuries they're dealing with. I mean, dancers learn to push through so much pain. Um, It's like, it becomes a part of their lives. And in some cases it can derail careers. So that's another way in which the stakes feel high. I mean, they're doing really dangerous acrobatic things on stage that if one little thing goes wrong, they could they could lose their career. Being a dancer, it's such a medicinal, and it's also an open door for other sports. I, I've read so many stories of, of, of big heroes in the NFL that were actually ballet dancers. It's so interesting because, you know, ballet is incredibly athletic. It's, it's like training to be an Olympic athlete. Mm-hmm. And then also there's this artistry that comes in. And... Um, and I think that tickles your brain in a cool way to be thinking of the beauty of it or what you're trying to express. And so, yeah, I think it's it's great cross training, as we've heard, for athletes. And I think also ballerinas look for chances for cross training in other realms as well. So I think that's really fun seeing the crossover that can happen. While you were doing your interviews and conversations and you were inside uh, the studios, did you run into the ballerina that basically would never look into the mirror? I mean, it's one of those where you look down at the floor, you look up at the ceiling, you look around, but you don't recognize the person in the mirror. Oh, that's so interesting. I think when dancers are professional dancers, the mirror becomes a tool. It's yeah. it's almost hard not to look into it. But I did speak with a dancer who she was dealing with the pressure to be thin. And she went through a period where she actually had a um, chronic illness that was leading her, her to gain weight. And she mm-hmm. had to leave dance for a while. And again, because you almost get this distorted sense of normal and what you're supposed to look like. She just found that she couldn't look at herself in the mirror anymore. And it was a terrible experience for her. I mean, truly crushing. Um, And she left ballet for a while. And then during that time, she actually started to think to herself, she started seeing life outside of the ballet studio and realizing that things that she had experienced maybe weren't as normal as she thought. And she started to think, I think I've been brainwashed. Mm. Like I've been brainwashed by this culture that expects me to look a certain way in the mirror that has authority, like so much power concentrated in the people who have positions of authority. And she came back to ballet as a professional dancer and, but is thinking about the mirror and thinking about authority and the culture of ballet in a completely different way. Wow. Future seasons. Are we going to see maybe a, a mirrored image of what it's like to be a musician and, and what they see and experience through the mirror? 
Oh my gosh, we have so many ideas that we're thinking about and discussing that could be another season. So we haven't landed on one yet. We will see. But I think these themes are really interesting to trace in different areas and I'm excited to do that. Oh yeah, because we all have a mirror and we, and, and I mean, that's what I love about this is that everybody has a story and, and, and you yeah. have the courage to step into that mirror saying, come on, let's have a conversation. Absolutely. That's the goal. Wow. Erica, you got to come back to the show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was such a delight to talk with you. Will you be brilliant today? Okay. Thank you. I will. <laughs> that's great. Absolutely.